Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In the 80s, Tom Cruise was able to make anything and everything look cool. F-15 fighter jets? Cool. Bartending around the world is a career choice? It's cool. Dancing around in your underwear and turning your parents' house into a brothel. Questionable, but yet somehow cool. What would 1990 bring? Well, more of the same, because Days of Thunder is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, one and all, to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. And we are here for a rip roaring racing time. Yeah, I went there because we're talking about 1990s Days of Thunder and returning to the podcast to tackle this left turn of all left turns is Carson Elkham. Carson, welcome back to the show. How you doing, man? Oh, Jason, thanks so much for having me, buddy. I am so stoked to get underway with this movie. It's been too long since I've been on, so I got the energy, I got the notes, so I'm ready to dive in with you, buddy. So let the listeners know, when you were pitching films to talk about this week, why Days of Thunder? I think it's an outlier, especially in Tom Cruise's filmography. When you say the name Tom Cruise... I really feel like this movie does not come to mind in the slightest, especially for, I feel like, the newer generation. This, in my opinion, is like Top Gun Light. It's that same kind of era, but it just didn't get the hype around him. And I think it's a really interesting film, even based on what went into it, how it was shot, filmed, how everything came together for this movie. It was just a really interesting piece that I believe does not get the love it deserves in the slightest. And the funny thing is, when you think about it, you say Top Gun Light, it's the same producers, it's the same exactly. director, right? Like it's who there's there's a lot that that it parallels. And yes, I do agree that it kind of, you know, hits a lot of the check boxes from Top Gun. But it's funny, too, that, that you say, you know, Tom Cruise's filmography and whatnot, because we've talked about him before on this show when we covered the, the movie Legend. And, you know, yes, that was in his you know younger career days. But, you know. He has some outliers that I think are actually decent films. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I like to think this is absolutely one of those. All right. Well, let's figure out. Let's go deep into this film. But before we do, it is time to take Days of Thunder and trailerize it. The world of NASCAR is fast, exciting, and entirely predictable. Turn left four times, hundreds of times in a row. But director Tony Scott is about to set this race to cruise control. Coasting through a threadbare plot with fewer turns than a super speedway. Tom Cruise stars in Days of Thunder, a movie about a guy who doesn't know how cars really work, but still getting behind the wheel for a pit boss who doesn't want to let him drive, and a team owner with no sponsor, no car. Yeah. 
together, they'll speed run through an entire NASCAR season until the top drivers, along with the storyline, hit a massive car wreck. Cole Trickle will seek the help of a doctor who surprisingly doesn't acknowledge the fact that Cole Trickle sounds like a condition to treat and not a patient. It's Days of Thunder, rated PG-13, for press on the gas. It should be noted, uh, for anyone who's sitting there going, oh, he made a trickle joke. Cole Trickle, the, the character name, is actually an homage to one of the greatest, funniest sports names of all time, Dick Trickle. <laughs> Honestly, as you're reading the intro too, I was laughing to myself, trying not to get in the mic and cut you off. But <laughs> oh my goodness, there's some there's some poor sports names out there, and I just feel bad for uh, for the boy that also only had two wins his entire NASCAR career, Dick Trickle. So right, kind of the joke and, and kind of the butt of racing. So. I wish that man all the best. I was about to say, you know, he may not go down in NASCAR infamy, but he will definitely go down in sports name infamy. Right up there with uh, Rusty Koontz and Stubby Clap. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Right now, people are sitting there going, what the hell are they talking about? Why didn't they bleep that out? They're real names, people. Real names. Real names. Real names, real stories. That's right. Not the best stories, but, you know, <laughs> do what you can with a name like that, I suppose. Well, let's speaking of names here, let's talk about who's actually in this film. No, it's not Dick Trickle. Uh, this film stars Tom Cruise, Robert Duvall, Randy Quaid, Nicole Kidman, Michael Rooker, and Carrie Elways, and John C. Riley. However, there's an almost starring in this film and there's some namers in here and you know we'll 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 kind of go down this road a little bit here as rowdy burns is played by michael rooker apparently tom cruise wanted kurt russell to play the role and i'm trying to picture that right now i honestly i read that too when i was looking over the notes and just going into everything and I, because Kurt Russell, and I believe it was the 70s, um, did The Last American Hero, which is essentially a loose biopic on, um, oh, the name is completely uh, dropping me right now. Junior Johnson, that's who it was. It was like a, a loose biopic on Junior Johnson, who is known as one of the, the greatest engineers and manufacturers in stock car history. And I think it's interesting to see that this would have been the second NASCAR title he would have been tied to. Because he's vocalized in the past, too, that he doesn't enjoy doing racing movies, which was odd to me in an interview I found. So it just seems like a very safe pick, especially for the era, but one that just I don't understand if he would ever actually do it or not. Well, first of all, let's be honest. Anything with Kurt Russell in it is going to be awesome because Kurt Russell is freaking awesome. Um, I just can't, you know, have that. I have that image in my mind of Kurt Russell uh, from Death Proof, the Quentin Tarantino side of the Grindhouse duology and him in that car and probably about the same driving skill there <laughs> as oh. dr claire lewicki there there's a bunch of names here so apparently robin wright was under consideration but apparently turning down the role according to imdb turning down the role of dr claire lewicki i'm going to toss these names out at you and just give me a quick yes or no if you can actually picture them in this role and there's a few names here and it's literally like the 80s 90s like who's who list kim basinger oh no no i don't think that would have worked sandra bullock 
that one interests me a little bit, especially for that that era when she was starting out in the late eighties, early nineties. That it's hard for me because Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise met on this set, and that's how their their relationship started and eventually crashed and burned. But that's another story, right? Um, but I, is it bad if I say that kind of works for me? Like I just in the role, I can kind of see it happening, especially with that little bit of like attitude to it too, as the doctor. Yeah. Allison Duty, who most people will remember as Elsa from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, but was also recently in RRR. No, no, I can't picture it. Especially, I feel like all that's coming to my mind is Indiana Jones now. And I just, no, that one doesn't work for me at all. Jodie Foster. That's another interesting one. Especially coming off of kind of like some of her, I'll say, I don't want to say use the word darker, but just some of her her roles around that time. I mean, you had taxi driver in 76, the year after you got silence of the lambs. I think you had what panic room in the early two thousands. Like I feel like the tone doesn't inherently fit, but honestly, I feel like I would have liked her in this to, to be honest with you. So yes, Sarah, Jessica Parker. <laughs> no, that one does not even just like popping into my mind, picturing her in the doctor's office with Tom Cruise. No, doesn't work for me. I can't inherently explain why, but no, that just doesn't seem to fit. And just like that, he turned left. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Madonna. Really? Apparently so. That's absurd. I mean, what other acting did she do in that that era? By that time, she had done Desperately Seeking Susan and Who's That Girl? And we're getting close around that time to Dick Tracy as well, so... Oh yeah, I'm just looking at her. I've just pulled up her filmography. Same year. Um, I'm. Can I give you a maybe? Like, I don't even know if that's an option. I like, don't know if in that role she would have fit. But yeah, uh, again, apparently, uh, Heather Locklear. Hmm, that's another interesting one. But I got. I'm gonna say no. I'm gonna say she wouldn't be suited inherently for that role based on the tone of the film. We still got more here, Michelle Pfeiffer. Yes. Yeah. I honestly could she, like see her doing it. And I can't exactly explain why, but I feel like if, I mean, she has a similar look to Nicole Kidman back then too. Oh yeah. I feel like she would have kind of fit like that, that heartthrob opposite of the main character. And I mean, like, what has she done around? Like she's Batman returns in the early nineties. She was coming off of, I mean, not coming off of, but Scarface in the early eighties. I'm going to say, yeah, yeah. I think that would have been an interesting take for sure. Molly Ringwald. You are just throwing names at me, eh? I don't I don't, know. don't blame me, blame IMDb for having this list. Like, so she's coming off the Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller. And, and Pretty in Pink, yeah. No, she was she wasn't so, in Ferris Bueller. I swore she was. No, she was not. That was Jennifer really? Gray. Oh, you are right. That is completely over my head. She was in, what other John Hughes did she do? Pretty. 16 Candles? And Pretty in Pink. Yeah, those are the other two. Yeah, like, so she's going from, like, a comedy to, I don't want to say a serious role, but, like, one with more depth, I want to say. Um, if you can say you know that about yes. a Tom Cruise NASCAR film, but yes. Uh, uh, touche, touche. Um, I'm going to say, yeah, I think that would have been an interesting take, so thumbs up for me. Julia Roberts. My in, like you know when you are doing those like tests in the doctors and they're like just the first thing that comes to mind if you're doing like diagnosis and stuff. My instant like in my head was yes, and I don't inherently know why, 
I just feel like when I think of the 90s, early 2000s, she instantly comes to mind. So, yeah, let's do it. His Top Gun co-star, Meg Ryan. I feel like that's an easy, like, yes, just for the sake of it's, like we just said, it's Top Gun light. So, yeah, rocking with already so many similarities that I feel like even the chemistry after it, like, you could have easily put her in. So, yeah. Yeah, but that's Goose's girl. I mean, that's true. That is true. That would be a little disrespectful, eh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, too soon. a little tough. Too soon for Goose. <laughs> too yep. soon, eh? <laughs> Just three more here. Brooke Shields. No, no, I'm gonna, I don't. Like, I feel like it's just such an interesting role to take in terms of like the opposite of Tom Cruise is always like always becomes relatively well known. And what was she she doing then? Like she, the Blue Lagoon. So and that was what a decade beforehand. Yeah. Um endless love i think is the only other one i know so i just feel like that would have been off-putting but then again we're also talking about a tom cruise nascar film as you said so put it right in there yeah sharon stone oh so she would have been coming off of or like, coming into casino and and, and around the time that. of the running man <sighs> oh, sorry, know, no no like sorry to total recall that. total recall total recall casino I think she could have done it. I think there could have been an interesting plot there for sure. And finally, Ali Sheedy. Speaking of that Breakfast an Club. interesting one too. Yeah. I actually don't mind Ali Sheedy in, in that. No, one. neither do I. And it's interesting because when I thought like Breakfast Club, St. Elmo's Fire, Short Circuit, I'm trying to even think what else she was doing then that would have kind of, I mean, War Games, but I've never seen War Games. So I oh, tell War you, Games is a gem. I know, and people always tell me that, and I've yet to see it. So I got to add that to the letterboxed. Yeah. Um, Put it on the list. <laughs> literally, that list has got to be a mile long already. I got to catch up. All um, right. What, one more character, though. Uh, as Tim DeLand, originally, Tom Sizemore was considered. And again, I don't hate that idea. No, neither do I. Honestly, I feel like it could fit. And I don't like when I picture them in my mind is what I was trying to do is just like throw Tom Cruise on the hospital bed and then the like who Nicole Kidman plays and just swap in the actress. But that one works for me, oddly. Yeah. So I honestly I couldn't uh, I couldn't disagree. The film was directed, of course, by Tony Scott and produced by Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. The soundtrack. And if you're a soundtrack fan, you know, this one's done Hans by Hans Zimmer. Zimmer. But yeah. for the first time in this podcast history, we have an almost scored by. Because apparently it was supposed to be Harold Faltmeyer, who, of course, did Beverly Hills Cop and Top Gun. But he couldn't do it. And it was actually on Harold Faltmeyer's suggestion of Hans Zimmer that he got the gig. So... so yeah, and I was going to say, Hans Zimmer considers Days of Thunder his worst scored movie, which really interests me because I like, especially when you see Tom Cruise riding up on the motorcycle in the first act, pulling up to pit lane, and that music is just perfectly in the background. Like, I feel like it really encapsulates everything, but I feel like as the movie goes on, the music just becomes more mundane, and maybe that's because you're just constantly seeing cars flip, and that's, uh, that's the only on-screen graphic we're seeing for a good chunk, but... I think I, I don't know. Like, I think it's a solid score. Not as best by any means, especially when you have some greats in there, especially in his future. But honestly, solid score to me. I think the one thing that this film does, you know, speaking of the score, is it, it kind of leans on that theme a little too much. And, you know, 
I can understand why, but the fact that, you know, this is basically like you said, Top Gun Light, and I'm sure Simpson and Bruckheimer are probably looking for a Top Gun-esque kind of score because it did have that, you know, Top Gun theme kind of tone yeah, to it. You could get the little ingredients out of it easily to easily see that this film actually was nominated for best sound of the 1991 oscars lost to dances with wolves and i call shenanigans because i think the sound design on this was actually pretty good no i absolutely agree especially so this is an interesting a little side tangent so this got an award for paramount for having the most camera and audio equipment at any shoot so they would film at all the tracks. I think they did Daytona, Darlington, and I want to say California were the three they shot at. And on top of the broadcast, they would bring all their own stuff. So there's an extra 28 cameras, mics, and a few other things that I'm, I'm completely dropping in the back of my head right now that got them an award for, I literally think it was the most, like the award was most used film equipment on a set. And I mean, when you have tracks that are two and a half miles long, you're going to win that award. Um, but it's really interesting because they actually had a lot of trouble with the sound design because the cars were so bouncy and poorly built that everything would shake and they couldn't actually get rid of the rattling. So to come out of that into an incredible, I'd say sound design as they did is a really, really incredible feat. I mean, if you've ever had the, I know during the NASCAR races, you know, they'll, they'll drop the commentators for like a good solid two, three minutes and a few laps there. And you just get the sound of the cars. If you've ever listened to that on like headphones, so you can actually get that, the, the left, right, uh, feel of the sound, like, like there, there's a distinct, there's a distinct NASCAR sound and it's very different from like IndyCar and Formula One. Like the cars just sound different it's um, a lot deeper right no very much so right um but they did a, they did a really really good job of the sound design in this one here the budget for this film is a reported 60 million dollars according to imdb domestically it made 82 million and worldwide 157.9 million dollars when it was released on the june 29th 1990 weekend and of course debuted at number one because that's what tom cruise does with 15 and a half million dollars the only other debut that week was ghost dad with 4.8 million it debuted oh, at numbers <laughs> yeah it debuted at number six uh your movies in between were dick tracy in its third week RoboCop 2 in its second week, Total Recall, speaking of Total Recall, in its fifth week, and another 48 hours in its fourth week at number five. But the reason we like why we are here, and it's not just because you like when cars turn left for all day, is the critic score. Over at Metacritic, this film has a meta score of 60, and over at Rotten Tomatoes, the audience score is in sync with, Met with Metacritic at a 60%, but the tomatometer... 37 percent and before you sit there and shake your head and go what the hell i need remind everyone that if you're taking a look at the critic score which is what we do to, you know to qualify our films the original top gun does qualify for this show i had no idea that it was rated that low initially like that's a cult classic that like, people consider like an icon it was related like it was below 50 percent it was below 60%. 60, yeah. If the, if the tomato is green, absurd. the movie can be seen. <laughs> oh, I like that. Right. Like, that's still, that's absurd. 
Top Gun is below 60%. I mean, I'm not like a diehard Top Gun fan, but that seems low to me. Like, that's absurd. It, it is one of the things where, I mean, let, let's be honest. It's a, it's a, it's a popcorn flick, right? Oh, yeah. You're, you're, you're not going to get the critics with a popcorn flick, but I want to put this into perspective. Okay. Speaking of this. So Top Gun critic score 57%. Top Gun Maverick. 96%. That sounds like a little bit of member berries right there. I don't know if... Because to me, in all honesty, Maverick isn't as good as the first one. And I know that's an unpopular opinion, but to me, there was more... I just... I don't want to say love, because obviously when you kind of reboot into a sequel that you're going to have that that nostalgia and that just love put into a film. But I, I always thought of Top Gun, the original, more raw, more real. And I feel like when we move to that newer era, even though the amount of insane camera work they did with the jets and the military was just incredible, I feel like there's just something missing in the second one that I just that lacks compared to when I watched the first one. I can see it now. That'll be like the first movie on. It's not that good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's break this one down, though. Let's find out what the critics got right or wrong on this one. We're going to start with Tom Cruise as the unfortunately named Cole Trickle. How is he for you? You know what? It's interesting because there's times in this movie where I love how he portrays him. And it's honestly when he is the most, I'll say, in his early stages in like Act 1, beginning of Act 2, when he's still kind of finding his footing and making his way into the series. I found his character at that point in the film was a lot more grounded than what it becomes in such a quick jump and time jump into the later half, into that final act. So I honestly love a lot what he does, and I think there's some great moments, but I think at times it's overshadowed by how much is just going on on screen, and I think that can kind of overshadow his role, but I liked him in it. I thought it was a solid portrayal, and I mean, there's very few that I think I could put into this role, especially given Hollywood and kind of the southern nature of nascar which is so so blatant and unfortunate in so many ways that we can get into because there's very many problematic issues with this film especially for for even when it was filmed but um i liked him in this role i honestly there's a sequel coming out i don't know if we're going to get to that but um i'm glad i'll be seeing him again in this role i think the interesting aspect of cole trickle's character is that he's apparently coming over from open wheel racing. And the idea of someone who, let's be honest, looks like Tom Cruise, you know, he is not tall, but, you know, he's he's fit. There's there's no question about that, but he's not tall. Like, he embodies what a Formula One or Indy car driver... Yeah, in general, just a race car driver, right? Like, the average height of an automobile driver, excuse me, race car driver, motorsport, is 5'8". So that's, I mean, he's, I don't even know how tall Cruz is. He's got to be like 5'7", right? 5'8"? Like, I don't think he's super tall, so... No, no. And I know he's not tall, but... uh, it's one of those things where you're like, well, the fact that, that even Tom, you know, in the movie themselves, you know, he's looking at Nicole Kidman going, how tall are you? And it's like, because, yeah, Nicole Kidman's tall. She's very tall from what I understand. I mean, have you seen her next to Keith Urban? That man is tall, too. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, I like, I just like how raw the portrayal is initially. And, I mean, you just said it yourself because he's coming from open wheel racing. And, essentially, what it specifies early in the film is he was in something called the World of Outlaws series, which is a open-wheel oval dirt series. So it's essentially souped-up go-karts to simplify it that rip around dirt. And it's kind of like 
the junior A equivalent in, in auto sport and motorsport. So essentially, once you graduate that as a driver, you're real, especially in the 90s, everyone wanted to be at Indy. So that's a lot of the main goal of drivers, especially in that era. And I think they encapsulate that well. And I think Tom Cruise does a really good job at selling that. For the record, by the way, Tom Cruise is five foot seven, right on the nose. Ah, so. I called it. Yeah. Um, I think the thing, though, is that there's these moments where you have Cole's honesty, the fact that, you know, he knows how to drive a car. He doesn't know how a car works. And that's both a fascinating and confounding um, set of, you know, character trait because you would have to think that a driver should know how the damn car works. But how, I mean, I wonder how true that may be in that they know how it feels. They know how to make it do what they need it to do, but do they really need like an in-depth knowledge of, you know, how to get the best out of the car? So the interesting thing with that is especially for this era of just racing and stock car racing, you were a lot of the time building your own cars. Like you had a very small team, like chances are your pit crew guys are the ones that were building that car and fixing it. And you were like, kind of working on really razor thin margins as a team. So anyone that knew what they were doing was working on that car. So to have, it portrays it really well as Tom Cruise is this young rookie hotshot coming in because he's really uneducated. He knows nothing about the car. He is, from what we understand, he had some money growing up with his dad um, and that's what got him into to racing in general and money is king in racing. Um, and I think it does a great job of portraying that little snarky rookie kid that is expecting to go out and just win and race and not have any repercussions. Meanwhile, this team, as you see in the movie, is poor, which is honestly very similar to how a lot of teams operated at that time. If you knew what was going on, you were working on that car, and then you're racing it on Sunday, right? I just, I think the the biggest thing for me about Cole is that what's his motivation? I mean, aside from driving, right? He just feels like the tool that Tim needs to get the sponsor for like, it's not Cole's journey. It's, it's almost like the team's journey. And which is interesting because, you know, Tom Cruise is so used to being, you know, the singular focus in the story arc revolving around him. But really in, in, you know, in, in racing, it's a team sport even though it's just the driver behind the wheel, I I don't see a character arc so much for Cole because he doesn't really change through the whole film. No, he doesn't. And this perfectly segues into what I wanted to bring up before we got really deep into kind of the the acts and and throughout the movie is that a lot of people don't know this, but the film is, is pretty closely but loosely based on how the team Hendrick Motorsports got into NASCAR and Hendrick at the time only had, when this was filmed, had seven wins in the highest level of stock car racing. And they were essentially using this movie as a way to get their team out into the world and get people to know. And the movie is based on kind of the earlier start to their team. They first started racing in 83 and it took them till about 93, 94 to get really competitive. And this story is very close to what actually happened within the Hendrick Motorsports organization to the point where Tim is based on Hen- uh, Rick Hendrick, who was the owner, City Chevrolet, which is on Cole's car, 
is the dealership that Rick Hendrick owned for years to fund his team. So I think that's one of the big reasons that there's not a whole lot of in-depth character piece because it's really being portrayed and told from a story of a team perspective. So I think it focuses on so many characters at once that it really lacks getting in-depth to one. And I think that's definitely one of the reasons why this movie isn't as beloved as a Top Gun or, or some of his other his films. I think that explains why when you, when you close your eyes and you, you know, if someone said to you, name three Tom Cruise characters, right? Obviously, Maverick's going to be the first one. Ethan Hunt. Uh, Ethan Hunt from the, from the Mission Impossible films, yes. Some people will probably say his character from um, Cocktail. Because Jerry Maguire I could put in there, Jerry too. Maguire, exactly, right? Not many people are going to put Cole Trickle in that list of three characters. And I think that's probably why, because the focus of the film isn't necessarily entirely upon him, even though Tom Cruise was the selling point of many a film back in the day. Absolutely. And, and I think still today. It, it fits well, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think for what this movie was trying to tell as a story, I don't think they would have near got even the the budget, the box office revenue that they did without Tom Cruise. I think you needed a name that big to tell this kind of story about a small town auto shop that turned into a NASCAR team, right? And I think... This was really the only way to do it. I mean, maybe you could have swapped into another big name, but at that point, he was one of the biggest actors on the planet. So I think it fit well into getting this movie out there. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, 
you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, let's move on to Robert Duvall, who played Harry, the the, the pit crew, the, the maker of the, the car. Chief. Exactly. Um, how was he for you? He is my favorite character in this movie. Absolutely. And it's a multitude of things. He just plays it so well. I love some of the lines he has. He makes me laugh every time I watch this movie. His delivery is crisp. I feel like he has real emotion, especially when he's in that garage talking to just the the chassis of the car, saying what he's going to do to it, which sounds grossly sexual when you actually break down the, uh, the movie itself in that scene. But every scene he's in, I'm instantly more intrigued. So I think that's just a great spot to have a character that whenever they come on, I'm just more intrigued into what he has to say. Now that you tell me that this film is, you know, lined or aligned at least with the the story of Hendrickson uh, motorsports, I just wonder if there was someone, you know, making those cars and did that because there, it really felt like they were adding like that folksy mysticism to the, the building of the car. And, you know, I don't, I could see it. Right, but for the rest of the film, it felt out of place for his character. Like his good old boy attitude, even though he's a little, you know, maybe a more mature good old boy, you know. And then you have these moments where he's sitting there and you know telling the chassis exactly what he's going to do to it. Um, it's it, it's it's like almost like two different characters. So I wonder if the character of Harry was an amalgamation of different people. So that's what I I have been led to understand. You pretty much hit it right on the head. So he is based on a Hendrick crew chief by the name of Harry. It's Harry Hyde instead of, um, I can't even remember his last name. Harry Hodge, is that what it is? Yes, it is. In the movie, Harry Hodge, yeah. So Harry Hyde was Tim Richmond's crew chief, which was Tim Richmond was essentially Hendrick's saving grace at the time. And it's very similar to what... Cole Trickle was. He was going to be their guy. He was going to be what kind of put them on the map a little more. Um, and from what I understand and what I've been, I've read into is that Harry is an amalgamation of Harry Hyde and a few other crew guys that were involved in the original Hendrick car. So I hit it right on the head. Randy Quaid as Tim DeLand. And to me, you know, on, on initial watch, felt like the most realistic person uh, of, of the three. Um, but how was Randy Quaid for you? It's really interesting because every time I rewatch Days of Thunder, there's just this part in my head that I'm like, oh yeah, Randy Quaid is in this. Um, and maybe that's because I'm thinking of him hiding from tax evasion in Vancouver. But uh, <laughs> um, it's just interesting that um, he does fit. And I mean, every time I look at him in terms of film perspective, I'm just ready to see Uncle Eddie in a bath towel on the street. So it's always funny for me to see him, but honestly, he portrays it well, and he's made to be, quote-unquote, Rick Hendrick, the CEO of the team, and he sells it well. He's got the emotion to do it. He acts like a real team owner does, and he really portrays the team how it would have been as close as you can in film and to get that fiction in terms of a loose biopic, right? So I think he does a good job for what he is asked to do. The thing is, his portrayal is... You know, fairly realistic, it feels like. You know, like 
the owner it cares is. about the sponsors, you know, cares about the, you know, the results on the track and, you know, the people are, you know, he knows that they're the, the right people for the job, but he's not going to coddle them. He's not going to sit there and defend the antics if it upsets the sponsors, right? Like you, you have to have that balance. And I felt that he handled it in a very realistic way. No, he absolutely does. And you got to like motorsports is the most expensive sport in terms of team operations day to day that you can get. It's hundreds of millions of dollars spent in a year. Sometimes like I know formula one now had to implement uh, just as an example, a cost cap that they can't exceed because some of the big teams were spending close to a billion dollars a year on just R and D for their cars. And I think when you put a nineties, late eighties, blue collar guy that wants to start this team and he's got backing and he's got money, but you got enough to really just get yourself on the map and pray that someone wants to throw their logo on your car. He sells it really well. Oh yeah. If you, if you were to take someone working in motorsports now and show them this film and the making of the car, they'd be like, Oh dear God, it's the medieval ages. Cause you know, <laughs> absolutely the, yep. the science that goes into perfecting the car, especially in formula one, um, it, 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 there's a lot to it. And uh, clearly no one told Red Bull that there was a cap. Um, but you know, I, I, <laughs> I digress. I digress. Michael Rooker, a young Michael Rooker playing Rowdy Burns. Uh, I, first of all, I had to shake my head because uh, I had this picture in my head of him as Yondu, of course. Um, but then here he is. And it's like, holy crap, he's a lot younger back then. But how was Michael Rooker for you? I think he was a really good opposite to Tom Cruise. I think the duality in their tones and their emotion and just you have... Because, I mean, Michael Rooker's a young guy in the movie, so he's not like a seasoned veteran, but he's a solid, cemented driver in the Cup Series. And I think he does a really excellent job of putting that little bit of, like, flair onto his role as a bit of, like, a cheeky, he's got big ego, and and he's going to do what he does on the track, and you see that throughout the film. But I think he keeps it well in tone. And when you get to the later acts of the film after the accident and when he's kind of rehabilitating, I think that's when you see him at his best and you really see into him as a driver, as a person, as a family man, into what he goes through. And I think he does a really good portrayal of, of what uh, of what he's asked to do. I think one of the things that I like about his portrayal in this is that there, there, there isn't really redemption arc for Rowdy. No, it's actually really sad when you when you kind of step back and look at it, how it all goes down for him. Yeah, I mean, it's not even like, you know... The, the crash happens and all of a sudden we feel bad for him. No, his personality hasn't changed at all. All he still cares about is winning. I mean, yes, his motivation is that, you know, his family and his bills are paid because of, you know, because the car wins and, but that's still a, a selfish motivation. And even, you know, when Tom Cruise goes to see him, you know, at his home to, to get him to go to the doctor and whatnot. You know, he's sitting playing pool while his wife is looking after the three kids, one of whom is screaming extraordinarily loudly. We're not supposed to like Rowdy really at all. Um, and it, it's fascinating that he doesn't have that that redemption moment. Norm, normally when you have a character go go like that, they, they you feel bad for them at the end. I, I don't feel bad for Rowdy. Well, I feel bad that he doesn't drive, but I don't feel bad for him as a person because he didn't really learn anything from this. No, and I think when we talk about a redemption arc for the character, I think if it's 
I feel like his redemption comes from his relationship with Cole. I think that would be in this situation considered his redemption and the rebuilding, or I should say the building of that relationship. Right. And I think that's kind of where the movie takes it in terms of his arc. I don't hate it, but I definitely, as I feel like a racing fan and someone who just watches the movie and gets some, some great enjoyment out of it feels a level of sadness as a, because there's so many real life examples of, of, athletes in general but drivers specifically getting into bad accidents and, and never being able to drive again and that's been their whole livelihood and i know that's been just a big thing in sports in general and mental health kind of dealing with once you're once you're done what do you do i think that's where i probably get the most emotion from from rowdy as a character is when i view him from from the lens of a viewer um but i honestly i i do like him in the role. Like I can't say there's someone else out there that I'd prefer. And I mean, he's a, a notable character, especially in like the NASCAR community. There's a, a current driver right now whose nickname is Rowdy based on this. So it's uh it's not to say he's not popular. I, I think I mean, obviously, you know, you take a look at drivers like Paul Tracy and James Hinchcliffe, right? Um, yep. Who have been able to transition to uh, a post-racing life. But yes, there are going to be those drivers who once they're done, they're done. Absolutely. I do appreciate you also throwing out names of two Canadian drivers. I like that. Well, clearly, if you're going to land on your feet, you got to be Canadian, right? Um, Absolutely. <laughs> not saying, but I'm saying here. Nicole Kidman, of course, who played Dr. Claire Lewicki and not everybody else who was offered the role of Claire Lewicki. Um, it's interesting because this this is a popcorn film. There's no two le- two ways about it here. But I think Kidman almost brings the level of acting up in this. I think her scenes in particular are a nice step away from what's going on. The whole movie runs so quick and it's just boom, boom, boom throughout every scene that I think whenever we see her on screen, the entire tone of the film slows down. And I think we get some really powerful acting in some of those scenes. Um, and maybe it's just for the fact that I'm I'm finally getting some actual minutes of just on-screen storytelling that aren't filled with, I'll say, action. Um, But I think she plays a really integral part in this film. And I think without her as a character, we would be looking at more of just, uh, I don't even know what to call it, just your typical, and not to say it isn't, but that that 80s, 90s dude action flick, right? Um, I think she sets the tone well for the scene she's in, and I think it's it's a nice break from the movie. I think that the other thing, too, is that at no point does she ever really um, lose who her character is, right? She's a doctor. She's professional, right? She's she, Cole is still, at the end of the day, her patient, even though she's fallen for him. But it's not a, a swoony falling for I, I, It's almost like the, the opposite of what Kelly McGillis did in Top Gun. You know, she felt very swoony when they you know when they got together here it was very you know albeit not professional but you know still a professional attitude about it and at no point does she ever fawn over him at no point does she ever go girly right for lack of a better term um it's she's still the adult in the room and i think she realizes that because of what harry told her that that her approval and her the way she thinks about Cole affects Cole because he doesn't want to feel 
like he's disappointed her or offended her. Like she realizes that Cole isn't the matured level that she's at. 100%. And I think it fits well into the movie. I think she's the one person that quote unquote will call him on his bull if he were to actually do anything. Um, and I think it fits nicely. It's like I said before, like it's just a nice change in tone where I feel like I'm actually seeing a relationship built in this movie that isn't solely focused on the driver and the car. And I mean, we get a, a little bit more of that with, with Michael Rooker to an extent, but not till the last act. And then we get that um, minorly with, with Harry as well. So I honestly think that this is just a really nice step back from the movie to see what you're watching. And it's just nice to see a real relationship form between two characters. Terry Elways as playing Russ Wheeler. By the way, if you're going to, you know, have a driver in your movie and your last name is Wheeler, like, what's next? Have a driver named Will Power? Oh, wait. <laughs> yep. And, and Russ Wheeler is probably my least favorite character in this entire movie to the point where he actually frustrates me. And I don't know how much of it is actually... Um, like Carrie Ellis as like the actor as much as this is just what he's given as a script and how the plot goes. So he comes in and replace of Cole to drive the car and he ends up getting a job from it, but yet he still then hates his teammate, which makes zero sense at all. If you get a ride in the top level of stock car racing, especially when a guy was injured and you took his place, it sounds bad, but you like you owe the man your career after that because that's a lot of the time. If you don't perform when you're brought up like that, you rarely get a second look. And that still goes true today. So I think it's just, I don't know if it was a lack of just knowledge or they just wanted another antagonist, quote unquote, to throw at him. But to me, it's just, it's a flop part of the movie and maybe that's a little too heavy, but um, I just, it's it seems unrealistic to me. And I think that's where my mind just kind of tunes out. I think that's where, you know, and I can't believe I'm making this comparison, but it is a racing movie, so I'm going to make this comparison. You know, the movie Driven, starring Sylvester Stallone, explored more of the team driver mentality, a little, I think a little bit better. They didn't do much better in that film, but regardless of, regardless of, um, the thing with Carrie Elways is that there's one moment where you you know exactly who Russ is, and it's, you know, when he first meets Cole and says that he's going to drive for them kind of thing. And it's almost like Tim's got to prompt him to say something nice to Cole and whatnot. And Russ is, for lack of a better term, a social climber. And oh. he says exactly what he needs to say in order to make himself look better. He in this film, in terms of what they're trying to go for and the tone they're setting, he's like the poster boy for what you want in your car, minus what he does literally behind the scenes the entire time. Yeah, no, he's he's going to do what he needs to do. He'll walk all over you, but he'll say the nice thing in front of you because he knows that if he doesn't, then he looks bad. It's you know you needed a villain, and I think that's the other thing too. Like until Rush shows up, we didn't necessarily have a villain we had we had a rival in rowdy and then they kind of made up and it's like okay well they're 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 friends now like and you still got at least a half an hour of the film to go like what are we doing now no exactly it's 
it's just my least favorite part of the movie is those scenes, which is sad because there are some like entertaining like blips that come out of that time of the film. And it's just, it's, it overshadows it for me. Like I'm just, it seems unnecessary. I feel like you already have a decent enough rivalry going with, with Rowdy at the time and you throw in another character and then you just randomly throw in Dom Simpson for some reason. I don't know if we were going to get to that, but him at Don Simpson as Aldo Benedetti is just also completely random and, and does not fit for me in the slightest, but um, yeah, it's just off-putting. It just changes the tone of the movie. I feel from, from a growth of this team to just an unrealistic internal battle, which you'd never see at least in, in NASCAR, from what I understand. I mean, it gets a little tighter when you go into different racing series, but you never see two drivers just tearing it up like that and costing a team money because you would be both getting the boot if you're wrecking that many cars. <laughs> All you got to do is watch Drive to Survive to know that one. <laughs> yes, sir. One final actor, but in, even though it's a smaller role, it's John C. Frickin' Riley. So you got to talk about him. Uh, as Buck Brotherton, um, I liked him in this, I think because he almost embodies the kind of person you could see uh, as, as, as Harry having on his team. Absolutely. He fits so well. He's that blue collar, hardworking, grew up watching racing. In he just, oh, I love it. And I got to ask you though, do you like him better in this or in Talladega Nights? Oh no, this. Definitely really, this. Eh? Yeah. I feel like his his role is much more grounded here. I mean, obviously you're going from more of an action, quote unquote, drama to a comedy, but I don't know. Shake and bake, buddy. Shake and bake. <laughs> okay. We need to talk about the believability aspect of this there there's a lot that goes on in the track that you know wouldn't pass muster in the real world of nascar um i think one of the quotes from one of the drivers was that the the only thing they got right in this film was the numbers on the side of the car um (laughs) as a racing fan and you're watching this does it feel like you could be seeing some of this kind of stuff in nascar there's moments for sure. There's there's definitely times where I'm like, this is convincing. Um, and honestly, the, the, the shoot of this movie was split between actually filming during races. So they'd essentially have the cars go out, run probably between 50 and 100 laps from what I read. They'd bring it back into pit lane and that's would be their filming for the day. And everything with other cars on the track comes out really good. And I couldn't give you a scene like by scene breakdown of that just from what I I was watching and what I was reading. Um, But then you go into the scenes that they just had the track empty and they had the six or seven cars they were using to film. And that's when it gets a lot more fictiony for me. And I mean, they use the same, if you notice, they use like three of the same shots, like multiple times. I mean, you're always turning left. So just throw the same shot in there again. Um, especially when they do that bumper angle low along the, the strat, the front stretch, back stretch, whatever they do that a ton. And it's just, it frustrates me a little bit because you had the resources. You clearly had the time and the resources. You had friggin' 28 cameras there. You tell me you couldn't get a decent shoot on one race. Like from what I understand, it was a lot of, time constraints constraints which is funny because from what i was reading a lot of the cars were about 15 years older than the ones that were currently racing in 89 when this was filmed so they were using chassis and bodies from around 75 76 and essentially what would happen is they couldn't handle the extra weight of all the cameras and equipment being there 
So an engine would blow out, valves would blow out. They had a radiator loose and actually nitrous oxide leak into one of the, the cockpits. I can't remember what stuntman was in it, but he had to be taken to hospital because the cars were just that unsafe. And then you end up having the scenes where you're just throwing them everywhere and it looks like a crane just picked it up and threw it. Like it's not realistic in the slightest, a lot of the crash scenes, especially for that era of NASCAR. The cars were so heavy. They were so not glued to the ground that you really couldn't get that level of airborne back then. So I think to finish that rant, um, it's just... I would say about 20% of the time you're getting really quality, accurate racing scenes. I think the other thing too is that according to IMDb, when they started filming this movie, the script wasn't done. And I totally believe that. that like, I say. honestly didn't know that until you said it, but looking to the start of the film to the end of it, I can absolutely see that. And that apparently they were writing scenes on the fly and whatnot. And, it, it that's the biggest thing I think is that it really doesn't feel like there's a proper end goal for these characters except for maybe make it through the end of the season like at least with Driven you know you had the team trying to win the championship right um, here it, it just feels you know and I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to feel like a critic by saying this so I'm going to wash my mouth out with soap afterwards but it felt like the movie was going around in circles looking for a way to finish without horribly crashing and burning no I, that's the best way you could have put it and I will I will die on that hill with you too so we're both going down um, it's just yeah it's now that you say that I'm just thinking of like scene to scene act to act in my head and it just makes so much more sense now that this was just being as Indiana Jones would say just making this up as we go so makes sense yeah I mean I I don't know I don't know if you can really fault them for wanting to put out something like this I mean let's be honest NASCAR and really any auto racing it, it's fast as exciting you have the biggest action star at the time in Tom Cruise you know off off the you know, off of Top Gun, you had Tony Scott, you had Jerry Bruckheimer, you had all the pieces there to make it work, and you just didn't have a script, and at least not a finished script, and I I don't know, you said there's going to be a sequel released? Yes, yeah, so I was just reading that a couple days ago, that they're in pre-production doing the script and a few other things, hopefully the script is is done this time. But um, yeah, they've been in collaboration and talks with NASCAR for a few years now. I want to say back to 2019, 2018, because NASCAR actually approached them. I don't know who exactly if they went to Paramount or what, um, because Drive to Survive was doing so well. They approached a few streamers to try to do something like that. They didn't get it. Evidently, now they have one coming out with, I can't remember if it's Netflix or Prime. It's one of the two. But um, they've been trying to get it off the ground for, for quite a few years to kind of give NASCAR a more media presence again. And I honestly don't know if they want Days of Thunder, the original, to be that movie. I mean, it's a lot of, as much as the, it's, it's a solid film and there's enjoyable parts, there's still a lot of at Southern quote-unquote heritage. There's a lot of flying of the Confederate flag, which is and just awful. There's a lot of just subliminal racism, and it's just not, not an appropriate film to especially market your sport off of in today's time. And then there's really no other NASCAR film out there. So when people watch one of these, that's what they're going to. So 
NASCAR is in a big kind of flip, especially in the last decade to, to change their, I guess what they're seen as. And, um, from what I understand, things are getting underway and it's, it's expected to be about Cole kind of mentoring and taking over the team. It's honestly weird. It's very similar to Top Gun Maverick when I'm now saying it out loud, um, kind of him taking the ropes from, from Tim and operating this team and retiring in like his last season. That's what I, I, the insider knows as of now. (laughs) I, it, and that's, I think that's the thing too, is that when you have this film and you've said it and I've agreed with you, Top Gun light and it didn't do as well as the original Top Gun. And then you have Top Gun Maverick comes out really, really well. Um, Fans like it, critics like it, everyone seems to agree that, you know, apparently Tom Cruise saved cinema, so, you know, whatever. Um, But then you're going to come out with Days of Thunder 2 and the continuing story of Cole. Do you think it's going to do better than the original Days of Thunder? And do you think it's going to do better than the original Top Gun? Because I don't think Days of Thunder 2 is going to uh, um, hit 96%. Oh, absolutely not. You can you put a stock car in anything, and I can tell you it ain't hitting ninety. Um, I just don't see it. Like uh, the original is beloved, and unfortunately, it's beloved for a lot of problematic reasons at the time too. I think you're gonna get those hardcore old fans that thinks that's the way it should be, and and that's still a problem in modern racing. And I just don't see, especially in today's time, it being that positive of a film. I mean, I, I think it'll be solid. I don't see why they can't make a solid sequel out of it, especially with how Maverick did. I'm not saying it's by any means going to be that close, but I there's light for it. There's there's promise and there's possibility, so I'll leave it at that. I think that there's there's ways they can do it, and like you said, Jason, like let's just have a full script this time, eh? Yeah, that would be nice. Go into it with a full script and we should be okay. I, I think it will do better than the original Days of Thunder, at least as far as a critic score goes. And money-wise, I guess it depends on how the box office is and how much money they spend, but you have to think, with everything that Tom Cruise has been able to do with the Mission Impossible films, and if he's working with the same crew that did Top Gun Maverick, then you visually it's going to look really, really good. Um, wonder if they'll let him actually drive the car this time. Uh, that would be nice. Would like to see it for once. Especially if that man can get in a plane, you're telling me he can't get in a stock car. Like, let's be real. Brad Pitt's doing a Formula One movie right now. He's been in a car. I, Tom Cruise in there. I feel sorry for the film's insurance company. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> all right. It has come time. All right. So, Carson, who is your MVP of Days of Thunder? Drum roll. Robert Duvall. Has to be. Um, every t- Like I said, every time I watch the movie, his scenes are just... they. I love them. The, some of the unhinged stuff that man says when he's talking about, next time you go out, I want you to hit the pace car. Well, why, Harry? Because you hit everything else on this track. I want you to be perfect. It's those kind of lines that I love. And when they get pulled over by the cops in the truck, I can't remember how the line exactly goes. I think they're talking about, you are being charged with the illegal distribution of alcohol beyond state lines. And he's like, this ain't the illegal distribution. This is just consumption. And it's just those smart little quips from just this old, old race crew chief that I just love. And it, it makes the film more colorful me. I love those little bits of humor spattled, like splattered in there. And I just... I love when he's on screen. It makes me it makes me a little giddy when I see Robert Duvall rocking it on screen. 
Well, I'm going to go in a different direction here. I'm going to go with Nicole Kidman. And I knew you were going to say that too. Yeah. I have this feeling. I was like, he's talking positively. I think that's where he's going to go. <laughs> I think the thing here is that with Kidman, like you had, you had a very real possibility of this role um, becoming more of the bimbo role. And I take a look at Doc in Roadhouse and how same theory right you have the doctor who kind of falls in love with the hero and then it becomes like real kind of you know forgets the professionalism of it all i'm i'm not trying to say roadhouse is any great bastion of cinema telling here but um it's good it's good enough but her her role became the bimbo here nicole kidman was still Nicole Kidman in this you know like the doctor was still the doctor Claire was still professional in in all of it and brought almost a level of prestige yeah the movie definitely didn't put her in a role that was just for the sake of being there for the sake of being the token I'm gonna say eye candy because that's what unfortunately so many movies were back then especially driven to the male audience it's disappointing but I'm glad in this role that she got an actual she got actual depth and that was really nice to see especially for as surface level this film is at times right yeah i mean she she didn't pull the kelly lynch and that's that's the main thing and i'm not i'm like i'm not trying to diss on kelly lynch but i made the same argument when we talked about roadhouse on this show in that that character just became you know just just, just an object at that point rather than an actual person uh nicole kidman definitely brings you know grace and professionalism to a role that could have been so much worse but made so much better by her carson thank you so much for jumping back on the show and discussing days of thunder and to you our listeners you guys know the drill if there is a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned or is just so bad that there is no way in heck that we can find anything good to say about it hit us up on all social media at not that Badcast. Or go to our website at notthatbadcast.com. While you're there, you can check out our other shows, like There Can Only Be One and Keep Watch Pass. And you can check out our Coming Soon page to see what we're working on next. Drop us a line. Let us know what you think. And let us know what movies you guys want us to cover. We want to hear from you guys. Until next time, Carson, thank you. Listeners, you guys are awesome. This is It's Not That Bad. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.